0: But okay, that is all the announcements for today. We are starting a new series today. We've just ended, we went through the entire book of Genesis and then um, what do we do after Genesis? Q and, Q and A, we did two weeks of Q and A, asked some good questions, we had some good, uh, good stuff. And a lot of those questions like sparked other questions which is always good, I always say, I should be lighting a fire, not filling a pail. So today we're gonna be starting a new book in the New Testament called First Timothy, and there's two books called Timothy, First and Second Timothy. And these are letters that were written by who? Paul. Paul yeah, the rabbi Paul, the Pharisee Paul. He was also called Shaul or Saul. True or false? Paul's name changed from Saul to Paul. False. false. Yeah, it never changed his name, right? There's no verse in the Bible that ever says he changed his name. He always had two names. He had a Greek name and a Hebrew name, Shaul and Paulos. They mean the same thing, just different languages. And that was common in that time in the first century for Jews to have a Hebrew name and a Greek name. So first Timothy, what we're gonna do today is uh, we're just gonna go chapter, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Today, we're gonna cover chapter one. And then next week, we're gonna kind of the lineup of who's gonna be teaching who. But next week, Jeremy will be teaching on chapter two. And then I'll be teaching on chapter three. Adrian will be teaching on chapter four. And then I'll be teaching on chapter 5, Adrian will be again teaching on chapter 6, and then we'll wrap up 1 Timothy, just to give you a lineup of who's going to be teaching, when, what, when, and how we're going to proceed through this book. So today, this is kind of an outline of what I'll be teaching. Um, We're going to follow this here and um, give you an idea of what we're going to cover today. We're going to look at, first of all, who is Timothy? Who is Timothy? Then we're going to kind of do a crash course on the city of Ephesus, and we'll talk about why we need to do a crash course on the city of Ephesus. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to watch about a five or six minute video about the history of Ephesus. Then we're going to read through and comment 1 Timothy chapter 1. And then I'm going to explain to you six lessons I took away from 1 Timothy chapter 1. And then hear from you guys. What are your questions or what is your feedback? What did you learn from 1 Timothy chapter 1? I want to get into the purpose of teaching on 1 Timothy and actually 2 Timothy. And here it is in a nutshell. I want to be able to equip us as Dothan Messianic Fellowship with practical tools needed to enhance the likelihood of our long-term health and longevity as a congregation, okay? So it really it's not to tickle your brains or anything like that, we, I, we might experience that, but really it's to equip us with good tools so that we can last a long time as a congregation. That's my, my hope and my prayer. And in lasting a long time as a congregation, we can teach sound doctrine, we can, we can offer salvation to people, and be a vehicle of salvation to people and, and bring them into the saving knowledge of Yeshua. We can strengthen marriages and families. We can support the people in the nation of Israel. Right? Those are all of our goals in being a, a long-term congregation. We're here to stay, right? But there are things that threaten the longevity of our congregation. And Timothy, First and Second Timothy, Paul really brings a lot of those out in, in his letters. And says, hey, these are very threatening things that could threaten the the believers and the assemblies in in Ephesus. You have to remember that, I know this is a shocker to some of you, there is no such thing as the internet when this letter was written. I know it's crazy. Another shocker maybe is there was no such thing as everyone owning at least three or four Bibles like there is now. You might be thinking, well, how do they read their Bibles? They went to the local synagogues or the assembly hall or, or the home of someone who was able to have a copy of the Torah or the prophets and the writings and maybe some letters or some of the gospels that were floating around and people were making copies of them. What became the New Testament? So you didn't have a personal, unless you were a very wealthy individual, you didn't have a personal copy of the Bible. That was unheard of. You had scrolls and maybe you had you know, some early forms of books of the Bible. But where did you go to hear the Bible? You went to the local assembly. You went to local, what maybe some might call the church or the synagogue. At that point, the lines were pretty blurry between Judaism and Messianic Judaism and this other religion that would begin to emerge out of that called Christianity. The lines were really blurry when this letter was written in the early 60s AD. And most, if not all, the believers coming into the faith were Jews at that point, but then we saw as the faith and the gospel began to spread into Asia Minor, there became this big movement within the Gentiles to come into the faith, and they began to come in and, and fill the synagogues and hear the Torah, hear the prophets, hear the writings. And maybe if, if they were at a messianic synagogue, if they accepted the gospel, they would maybe hear the gospels being read as well. And it's not till later that there was this schism between Judaism and the sect known as the Way that kind of broke apart, and they had to start meeting and physically meeting in different places, and then with the abundance of the Jews coming, or I'm sorry, abundance of Gentiles coming into the faith, it began to change and take a different kind of shape and, and, and form of how they worship because of that, as the Gentiles brought a lot of the stuff in with them. We have a lot of people in this room that are of different walks, in different denominations, of different religions even, that were prior involved in those religions. Pri- you know, their, their prior faith They were involved in, and we have people here representative of Catholicism. We have people here that are former um, Wiccans. We have people here that are former Pentecostals, Charismatics, people that are Jews. And this room are represented a lot of different people. And so when you step into this room, sometimes you take with you a lot of these preconceived biases or notions of how you are to worship, of how you are to carry out our corporate worship services, right? And you might be thinking, oh, that's... You know, when they when they do praise and worship, that's very charismatic of them. Or when we do the standing up, sitting down, bowing all that, that feels very Catholic to me or whatever. But we take in a lot of these biases. And sometimes we take those biases and those ideas of how we used to worship and we superimpose them and try to influence uh, the, the corporate worship service. Don't we? Sometimes we we give our feedback and we say this feels a little too fill in the blank. And that was the case in the first century. You had all these Gentiles who of of different origins, ethnicities worship different gods or goddesses coming into the synagogues of the first century and they would superimpose, they would impose their feedback on the worship service. They would learn a little bit about the Torah and the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and then they would impose their view of how you should worship. And it's, it's called influencing. And that's what we as humans do, right? That's all that a leader is, a leader is an influencer. They influence people to, to, to want to do something they otherwise would not do. So that's, a, that's the goal here, is to do that. Now, we have to back up and, and do a, another kind of a review here. You guys remember Paul. And we, we went through the entire book of Acts and talked a lot about Paul. And he, the fact that he was what we call now a missionary, which actually we learned that Paul was just a good Pharisee. Pharisees um, did a lot of missionary-type trips and proselytized um, and made sure they would go to synagogues in the diaspora and they would teach in the synagogues in the diaspora and they would try to provoke them to become more observant. How many of you ever been to like an airport in Israel and or you know, some, maybe like a mall or something like that and there is a very observant Orthodox couple men um, that are there with a table and they have a sadaka box where you can put money in and then they have like all these sets of tefillin, the phylacteries that you wrap around your arm. Anybody ever seen that before? Oh, yeah. Some of you have? So what, what are they trying to do? They're trying to catch non-religious Jews Who are walking by unsuspecting non-religious Jews who are walking by and they're saying, hey, can you um, have you wrapped to fill in today? No, I haven't. Well, do you want to here? I'll make it really easy for you. I'll help you. I'll coach you along. Just put, you know, a couple shekels in the box there. Give some charity, give some sadaka, and then I'll help you do this. And so they'll catch these non-religious Jews and try to provoke them to become more religious. That's what Pharisees did in the first century. They would go synagogue to synagogue and they would go into these synagogues in Asia Minor and they would teach about the Torah and they would try to provoke them and try to correct any, mis, mis, um, you know, uh, any, any, any bad doctrine or something like that. And they would try to, that's what Paul was used to doing. And that's what Pharisees did in the first century. So Paul made all these journeys after becoming a believer in Yeshua. He made all these journeys um, into Asia Minor knowing that knowing the location of all of these synagogues already. Knowing that in this town there's a synagogue, in Ephesus there's a synagogue, in Lystra there's a synagogue, in Iconium there's a synagogue. So he's going to all these places and he'll go there and he'll begin to preach the gospel. So you can imagine this well-learned Pharisee coming in from Jerusalem, who was very fluent in Hebrew, probably had large amounts of the Torah memorized, would walk in and then everyone would be like, wow, the great Rabbi Shaul who learned at the feet of Gamaliel is here in our midst. And then he would open up the Torah and and the prophets, and then he would begin to start teaching about how Yeshua of Nazareth fulfilled those things. You're be pretty profound, right? And he got some good reactions, got some bad reactions. But one of the places that's notable he stopped is the city of Lystra, the city of Lystra. And this is where he's going to meet a couple ladies who have a son. They're actually the grandmother and the daughter of this young man whose name was... I'm going to write it here in Greek. His name is mo plus the suffix Theos. Yes. I'm sorry, I misspelled. Theos. Timo plus Theos, and what was that? Timotheos. And what does that name mean? mean? Timo means to honor, to give praise. Theos. Is what? God. His name, Timotheos, is to give, God, to give God honor. He meets him. He's very impressed with this young man. Um, let's go for a slide here. What do we know about this Timotheos, this honorer of God? He was born and raised in Lystra. So he's a, he's a diaspora Jew. Okay? Um, he was born, however, to observant uh, mother and grandmother. We know that from Acts chapter 14. His mother was Jewish. But his father was Greek. We know that from Acts chapter 16 and verse 1. His name, Timotheos, meaning honoring God, we talked about that. He was well-learned, it says in 2 Timothy 3.15, well-learned in the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. He was well-learned in them. Okay? Paul says, from infancy, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Yeshua. So what else do we know about Timothy? Well, he was young, according to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. He was young because Paul says, don't look, let anyone look down on you, Timothy, because you are neotis but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. So the question is, how young was Timothy? And the answer is, we don't know. This word neotes it could be anywhere between like 13 years old, like a young, young teenager, all the way up to 40, somewhere in between there. You know, I tend to like, I, I like Josephus um, talks about maybe he was, uh, not Timothy, but this word maybe talks about maybe being in the mid to late 30s. Um, I like the idea of Timothy maybe being in late 20s and early 30s when he actually starts teaching. So when Paul maybe connects with him and meets him, he might be in his early 20s, and then later, as he's, this letter was written to him, 1st and 2nd Timothy, he might be in his mid to late 30s. That still fits within the, the youth category of that Greek word. We also know that he was given charge over the assembly in Ephesus. In the early 60s. Let's go back to our map real quick. Ephesus, if you see his life, ly- Lystra is here, and Ephesus is right over here. Okay? So we're gonna see he's gonna move over there and actually take control, not control of it, but charge over and overseer of that assembly, of that synagogue, and and the and the, the, the believers there. Timothy, of the thirteen letters attributed to Paul, six of them list Timothy as a co-author. So Timothy actually wrote many of the books of our Bible. Like 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Philemon. He's listed as a co-servant with Paul in Philippians, or named along with the other sender, Sylvanus without description in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So these Paul uses these generic titles like servant or um, author, but it's implied that it's Timothy as a co-author. Although Paul always listed is listed first, there's no status distinction between him and the co-authors. They're equally brothers or servants. So Paul had a very elevated status. He's, he helped write some of the pages of Scripture in our Bibles. And Timothy did, I'm sorry. So with that, I'm going to be quiet for about five minutes and play this video. Hopefully the volume um, is good. I might run over there and adjust it if it's too loud. But we're going to watch this quick video about the, the city of Ephesus, the ancient city of Ephesus, okay?
1: The seven letters to the seven churches represent a complete gospel message to the universal church or Christendom. These letters constitute the foundation for the entire book of Revelation, not just as a historical portrait of the first century church, but of the types of conditions in the universal church until the end of time. The first letter is written to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus means desirable and it was located at the mouth of the Keister River facing the Aegean Sea. It had one of the finest harbours in the world and was a main commercial centre for the coast of Western Asia. It was also a gateway to the province for the Roman officials. Today, the city lies about five miles inland due to a buildup of silt from the river, and with the loss of the port in the 4th century, the city gradually lost its significance over time. For when Revelation was written, it was the place to be. Stamped coins found in the ruins bear the words, the first of the greatest, and the first and greatest metropolis in Asia. This city had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana, a huge and magnificent structure that would have been located close to the harbour. Other temples of various emperors were in the city, as well as the Celsus Library, the third largest library in the empire that could house up to 12,000 scrolls, the facade of which still stands today. Ephesus was blessed by the ministry of Paul, Apollos, Timothy, and John, and was likely the place where the mother of Jesus lived until her death as John was entrusted with her care. Due to the commercial and religious significance of this town, the work that started here quickly spread abroad symbolic of the church in the first century. This church receives perhaps one of the best commendations a church ever receives. I know your works, your labor and your patience, how you cannot bear those who are evil and you've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. They were a hard-working church preaching the gospel fervently. They were vigilant about doctrinal purity, for during this time period, they were told to beware of wolves coming into the church in sheep's clothing. The church was also told that they were persevering, hardworking, and did not become weary, but they were rebuked for leaving their first love. Either first in time, as in their conversion, or first in prominence, as in Jesus needed to be first hardworking for God, but they had lost their love of Him and other people. This description of a doctrinally sound church that was working hard to preach the gospel fits the apostolic church and the experience during that time period. This is usually dated from 31 to 100 AD when the last of the apostles died. During this 70 years, the church started with a fire ignited at Pentecost. This fire burned strong and even 30 years previous, when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, it had not diminished. But it waned into a loveless state where the gospel commission was seen as an obligation and duty rather than a calling compelled by love. The only solution for waning love is to remember the first love experience and never be satisfied until it returns. Jesus remembers this first love experience and regrets its departure, but the fault is not his, it is ours. Remembering this happy love state can help create a desire to bring it back. Those who are going through this experience, the promise to those who overcome is that they will eat from the tree of life. Maybe you are going through an Ephesus experience. Perhaps you are doctrinally sound and evangelistically fervent, but you have forgotten why you are doing it and the person you are doing it for. Maybe you have wandered far from God and you need that first love experience back again. Pray to God, repent, that you may have that sweet and beautiful walk with Him again.
0: So with that, let's get into 1st Timothy and read a little bit about this letter that was sent to Ephesus. So turn your Bibles to 1st Timothy 1, if you have one, verse 1. It says, from Shaul, or Paul, in apostolos, which is a sent one. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word shalachim, which is someone who is sent out. I'm going to get my board here, write it up here where you have to see because. This word is important because Paul is identifying as someone who is an apo, an apo, and it's the addition of the word apo, which means um, away or from, and then the other word is stelo, stelo, which is with a mission from a superior. Okay? Paul is saying, I am that. I'm someone who's sent away with a mission from a superior. I'm an apostolos of the Messiah Yeshua by command of God, God our deliverer and the Messiah Yeshua, our hope. So there, he's laying out his credentials, isn't he? And he's saying, this is why you should read this letter. Verse 2. Who is this to? Timothy. Timothyos, a true son because of your trust. So it's notable that Paul is calling Timothy like a son here, which is a very rabbinic thing to do. When a rabbi takes young disciples on, it's thought of as if they are becoming like the son of their, or I'm sorry, the father of their souls. They have a biological father, a physical father, but it's almost like they're becoming their spiritual father. And that is the case. And that's the relationship we see between Timothy, and Paul. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace, shalom, from God the Father and the Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. As I counseled you when I was leaving for Macedonia, he said, stay on in Ephesus. And remember, that's that port city we just learned about. That was, it was named the desirable place, right? Very prominent place. And he said, so that you might order certain people who are teaching a different doctrine to stop. So right away, Paul opens up his letter saying, Timothy, stay in Ephesus and be a custodian of the believers there and prevent people who are teaching a false doctrine from doing so. Because you've got to remember, like I said, that not everyone has a copy of the Bible. Very few actually do. And there's no such thing as the internet. Where did you learn about the oracles of God? You heard them read publicly in the synagogue or the assembly hall, wherever the believers met. So Paul is saying, tell them to put a stop to that. They're confusing people. They're leading people astray. Verse 4, have them stop devoting their attention to myths and never-ending genealogies. These divert people to speculating. Now, this genealogy is like, it's, what, he's, what he's meaning there is, stop, tell people to stop paying attention to myths and trying to figure out who's descended of who. And who is of what tribe or, you know, who is really of, you know, a son of this, this tribe or descendant of this noble person. Just tell them to stop that. Why? Because DNA and ethnicity and who you're a descendant of means nothing really in the, in the kingdom of God, right? When you're in the family of Yeshua, all that is, is meaningless in terms of your status, Now, obviously, he set apart a tribe called the Levites and then the Kohanim, the sons of Aaron, to serve as priests. But that's the only ordained genealogy that he set aside. Other than that, race and ethnicity, they really mean nothing in terms of your status and where you stand in the kingdom of God. But apparently, back in the early 60s in the city of Ephesus, there were men who weaseled their way into the assembly and made that kind of a thing. And shame on them for doing so. He said it's diverting people to speculating or that Greek word could also be translated as like debating, debating instead of doing God's work, which is the oikonomia, which is like where we get the word economy from. Instead of paying attention to God's economy or God's house, being good stewards of God's house, they're instead debating about speculations. And fighting about who's the descendant of who, or about different myths and that sort of thing. In other words, Satan has effectively distracted them from the mission, which actually requires trust. Verse 5, he says, The purpose of this, the purpose of this preventing all that from entering in the assembly, is to promote love from a clean heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere trust. Some people, by aiming amiss, have wandered off into fruitless discussion. This Greek phrase here is metaios, and it's added with the word logos, which is like purposeless, impractical, or empty discussion. Meaning this discussion, even if we get to the conclusion of it, it doesn't really mean anything to us. You know, we do that sometimes with conspiracies, don't we? Oh, what if this? Or I think they did that. Or I think they're behind this. But well, at the end of the day, what are you going to do about it? Nothing? Okay, then let's move on, okay? Let's quit debating that. Let's move on. Let's be good stewards of God's house, his economy. Verse 7. They want to be teachers of the Torah, but they understand they neither, understand they neither own uh, their, their own words nor the matters which they make such emphatic pronouncements. So he's saying, look, they want to be teachers of the Torah, Timothy. They, they want to, oh, I'm, I know the Torah. I can teach the Torah. But they don't understand the Torah and they don't even understand their own words, Paul is saying. Wow. And if anyone has the grounds to send that rebuke, it's Paul, right? A, a student of Gamaliel. Man, that would sting to get a, a letter from Paul saying, hey, t- tell Gabe Rutledge to sit down.
1: <laughs>
0: he doesn't understand the Torah. He doesn't understand the words he's saying. That often feels like the case sometimes. Hey, tell, tell Gabe Rutledge to sit down. Man, I'd be like, whoa, the great Paul, the student of Gamaliel, the Pharisee from Jerusalem, who's, who, who lived and studied under the feet of the great Gamaliel, just told me to have a seat. Yikes, that would be humbling, right? Mm-hmm. Now, a good, healthy, humble human being would take that rebuke and heed it, and they would sit down and be quiet, right? Mm-hmm. But what does an unhealthy or a prideful or arrogant person do? They double down sometimes, don't they? Verse 8, we know that the Torah is good, Paul says, provided one uses it the right way, the way it's intended to be used. So that implies that there are people that might use the Torah the wrong way. Verse 9, we are aware that the Torah is not for a person who is righteous, but for those who are heedless of Torah and rebellious, ungodly and sinful,
1: wicked and worldly
0: for people who kill their fathers and mothers and for murderers. You know, I had someone years ago, um, use the Torah the wrong way and shame on me. I have done that. I'm guilty of that as well. But this, this person felt the need. We had, uh, we had a pastor and his wife come in one time and, and they were very curious about the feast days and they wanted someone to teach them about the feast days so that they could learn about them and maybe emulate them in their church or just learn more about Yeshua, right? Even if they didn't emulate it, it's like we should be able to just give answers for why we do what we do, right? Without belittling them or insulting them, right? And they came in and they initially approached me and said, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. I said, great, be wonderful, you know? And then someone was using the Torah the wrong way and actually caught them before me and sat across the table from them and just... For about 45 minutes to an hour, just insulted, 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 belittled, 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 right? And just tore down their beliefs oh. as being satanic, as being pagan, as being this and that. And then walked them up to me and said, here, I shared with them this, 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 and this. Now you can have them. And I said, well, thank you so much. You know, you just completely obliterated any opportunity I had to share truth. And, and did they ever come back? No. Absolutely not. Never heard a peep from them. The Torah was used in the wrong way. It was weaponized. And, and shame on us for doing that, right? But for people that feel invalidated in what they believe, uncertain in what they believe, they do that. They will take what they think they believe and they'll bludgeon other people with it to try to get validation from that. It's the people who are the firmest in their conviction and belief on something that are that the most okay with just letting it go. You know what, you don't agree with me? I'll pray for you, that's fine. I respect you. And I tell my sons all the time, hey, it takes two people to argue. Do you know that you're right? I'll tell them. "Do you know? Are you certain, you're 100% certain you're right on this? Yeah? Then stop arguing with them. Speak truth and then stop arguing. The argument will stop. And we're going to see later in this letter, Paul tells us, don't argue about the Torah. So verse 9, he says, oh, I covered verse 9, we're on verse 10. He says the Torah is for the sexually immoral, both the heterosexual and the homosexual. So, Interesting here, he says both can be immoral sexually. So that begs the question then, pretend you're a room full of pagans who maybe, you know, recently you went to a local pagan orgy at the go- the temple of the goddess Diana, which was a thing back then. And that was a religious duty that you would maybe go and, and partake or watch or observe or whatever. And then you're coming into the assembly and you're learning about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul says, hey, the Torah is for people that are that are both heterosexual and homosexual but are practicing sexual immorality. Well, What is sexual immorality according to the Bible? Here, here's, let me give you the definition of biblical sexuality, biblical sexuality. And anything outside of that parameter is sexually immoral. Biblical sexuality is between two consenting and mutual adults who are married and of the opposite gender. Anything beyond those criteria is unbiblical and therefore immoral sexuality to consenting adults who are married and of opposite gender. Okay. And that the Torah is for you. If you are being immoral in that, what does it, what does he mean? The Torah is for you. It's, it's exposing your sin. It's, it's illuminating, it's bringing to light the fact that you're acting immorally. It's for slave dealers, for liars, for perjurers, and for anyone who is acting or, or standing opposed to the sound doctrine and teaching that accords with the good news, of the glorious and blessed God. This good news was entrusted to me, Paul says. And I think the one who has given me strength, that is Messiah Yeshua, our Lord, that he considered me trustworthy enough to put me in his service. Even though I used to be a man who blasphemed and persecuted and was arrogant. How, how was he blasphemed? How did he persecute? You remember Paul was a man that actively hunted down followers of Yeshua back in Jerusalem, in the land of Judea. He actively hunted them down and had them executed, Paul did. And he says, but I received mercy because I acted in unbelief, not understanding what I was doing. See, Paul has believer's blood on his hand, doesn't he? But God showed him mercy, he said. Our Lord's charis, charis is like, like uh, where we get the word charisma. Our Lord's grace overflowed with me with, with, with faith and with agape, with love. Agape is an unconditional love. It's where we get the word to be gaping open. It's agape. There's no limitation to his love. That came through Messiah Yeshua. So here is a statement Paul says that you can trust. One that fully deserves to be accepted. That the Messiah came into the world to save sinners... And I'm the number one sinner. Wow. So Paul could just like pull the credential cards, right? But what is Paul doing here? I'm a sinner. He saved me. There's my credentials. Verse 16. But this is precisely why I receive mercy. So that in me, because of me, as the number one sinner, Yeshua the Messiah might demonstrate how patient he is. As an example to those who would later come to trust in him and thereby have eternal life. So Paul is saying, my past life has been forgiven and God has shown me mercy so that people are without excuse. That people will know that, yes, you did some horrible things. Yes, Paul says, but I've done worse. The blood of believers is on my hands. I persecuted, I blasphemed, I committed murder against people that followed this Messiah. And now I am entrusted with preaching his good news. If I've done that and been forgiven, he would definitely forgive you and show you mercy for what you have done and then have eternal life. Verse 17, so the king, eternal imperishable, and, and invisible, the only God there is, let there be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18, this charge, my son Timothy, I put to you in keeping with the prophecies that were already made about you so that by these prophecies, you might fight the good fight. Now, what prophecies were made about Timothy? To figure that out, we have to go over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Flip over a couple pages. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4.14. It's implied that we already know, but we, can, we don't know, but we can learn it. He says, 1 Timothy 4.14, he says to Timothy, don't neglect your gift, which you were given through a prophecy, when the body of elders gave you their authority or laid hands on you, literally is what it said. Be diligent about this work and throw yourself into it so that your progress may be clear to everyone. So what is this gift that was given to him by the laying on of hands? Let's figure out some more information, some more details. Go with me to 2 Timothy 4.5. 2 Timothy 4, five. Second Timothy four, five, he says, but you, Timothy, remain steady in every situation, endure suffering and do the work of an evangelist of the good news and do everything your service to God requires. So what is Timothy's gift? He's an evangelist. Yeah. Timothy is an evangelist. And literally the Greek is he's someone who who's preaches the euangelion to new people. He's a, he's an ev- evangelist. With that comes the requirement and the ability to be able to articulate information and share information well. We call that teaching. And then with that comes the ability and the gift to be able to what we call apologia, or we call it apologetics, defend what you're teaching. So as he's going into a new place, let's say a synagogue or a pagan temple, and he's presenting the gospel and teaching that articulately, that's the gift that's been given to him. He has to be able to defend it, make an apologia, a defense for that. And that was given, that gift was given to Timothy by the laying on of hands of the elders. Who were the elders? We don't really know. It could have been the Jerusalem Council back in Jerusalem. Yeah, which would include James. Or it could be a, a section or a small portion of the Jerusalem Council. Or it could be local elders that were appointed there in Ephesus. We don't know. But we see here a very important template. That there be this transference of authority from elders, from people that are already been tested to be people that are of God, that are teachers, that, that have authority. And then that, that transference of authority through the laying on of hands on to Timothy. And it's usually done in a very public way. So no one can question that it was done. But that was done in Timothy's case. And he says in verse 19, armed with the trust and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, some have made shipwreck of their trust. Among them are Hymenius and Alexander. And I have turned them over to the adversary, Paul says, so that they will learn not to insult God. Now, what does Paul mean by that? It could be that he's just kind of washed his hands of them and said, you know what, these guys, they are beyond reproof. I'm going to just let Satan do his... And that's the thing is sometimes people... Men especially that come in to the assemblies. And this was definitely true back then, I'm sure. Prideful men or arrogant men who come into the assemblies who, like Paul says, want to be teachers of the Torah, but neither understand the Torah nor the words that are coming out of their mouth. Oftentimes, if you let them just kind of kind of just turn them over to the adversary and say, you know what? Good luck. You know, a lot of times their fruit is revealed to people and the true character of their heart begins to be revealed to other people. And then it's just like, wow, I didn't know this about, they come to you, did you know this about this person? Did, did you know that he, he's teaching this? Or did you know all this stuff is going, he, you know, he's, he's an unjust person or, or he really insulted me because I didn't agree with him. Or, and it's like, yeah, I, I know that. You know, I, I, I know the fruit that was already there, but I, I want it. And then, and then they leave the assembly. They find they can't collect an audience from the assembly, so they leave. And then they fall into their own trap that they set for themselves in that, where it they, they just kind of falls on their head. One of the best things you can do if you're a person who maybe who's called to being a teacher or a pastor or anything like that, when people challenge your credentials or your qualifications, you do what Paul said and you say, yes, I am the chiefest of sinners. Like Moses did, fall on your face before God and say, "God, God has a way of deciding these things. And if he wants me gone, if he wants me out of the picture, so be it, right? This isn't my deal. This is his show. If he wants you to be in charge, so be it. But fall on your face and say, yeah, my, my biggest credential is that God had mercy on me as a chief of sinner. That's my biggest and only credential. And that's what Paul is saying here. This, this Hy- Hymenius and Alexander, these guys who I presume are the guys that he's talking about earlier in the chapter. He's saying, just wash your hands of them, Timothy. I've turned them over to the adversary. Don't be so consumed with trying to, to up them in a debate or an argument. Just let them go. They'll fall in their own trap eventually. So lessons I learned, I've got six of these from, from Timothy chapter one. Lesson number one. I'll move this out of your way, back, I'm sorry. The quality and the focus of the leader of a congregation or leaders of a congregation, it greatly affects the quality and the focus of the congregation. That makes sense, right? Yeah. There's a saying, as the leader goes, so goes the people. So what the leaders of Dothan Messianic Fellowship are obsessed or focused, or the quality of the the faith that we exemplify is going to trickle down and affect the focus of the congregation. Congregations that get really, really inwardly focused, that that become isolated and, and look at themselves or disputes or things going on within the congregation, and they forget to look outward and do the work of Messiah and be good stewards of his economy, they tend to be the ones that buckle and fall and eventually they just break apart, break apart, split, 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 split. I and mean, then it's just like, it's done. I don't want to do that. I don't want to become so inwardly focused. I want our focus to be on, on, on reaching out to people that don't know the gospel. I want our focus to be on people who have needs and we can fill those needs. I want our focus to be on praying for people that are outside of these walls. Because as soon as we get kind of caught up in this, this mire and this muck of being so inwardly focused on ourselves, we get really unhealthy we? Um, Lesson number two I took away from 1 Timothy 1. It seems that Paul's primary concern with the integrity of the congregation in Ephesus was not based upon an external threat, but rather corruption of the true faith from within. His primary concern and rebuke was aimed at believers in the assembly who were polluting the faith that he had passed down to them. And this should be a lesson for today, that oftentimes as as we gather together, one of the biggest threats to our cohesiveness and our unity as a congregation comes from within and not from without these walls. It's a threat from within. All right? So be mindful of that. And that sometimes that's, that's fights, that's disputes, that's false doctrine that's taught and propagated. Lesson number three I took away from 1 Timothy 1. We should be cautious of people who are claiming to be teachers of the word, yet entertain vain discussions, make emphatic yet faulty claims, and, repent, uh, and repeat empty or impractical speculations. We learned that from verse 7. We should be careful of people that do that. Yeah, an impractical speculation might be, um, oh, I've got some. (laughs) Rapture predictions. Oh, that's a big one, right? We love to make rapture predictions. Why? Why do we do that? It's like we just don't take his word. No one knows the day or the hour of his return. We love to make second coming predictions. But we should be weary of someone who does that. Do you agree? We should be weary of someone who does that. And, and I had a conversation with a, with a gentleman like just a, a month or so ago. And he was showing me some evidence as why he believed the rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture was going to happen on this particular date. And I love the guy. And I said to him, what are you going to do about this? Well, first of all, I started off saying, I know 100%... certainty that this is not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. And he was shocked. And I said, let's say you're right though. What are you doing about this information? Do you really believe this information? He said, yes, I do. What are you gonna do about it? I'm gonna share this with everyone I know. Okay, what if I'm right and it doesn't happen? And now the dozens of people that you shared it with see that your objective truth claim was incorrect what does that then do to your testimony exactly. he thought for a second i guess it hurts it correct so what if you just don't share that what if maybe you believe you can believe it that's fine but what if you just look at it and you go hmm interesting maybe okay move on what if you invest instead in the lives of people around you and your children and your grandchildren and you teach them the precepts of god and say that his return is soon I don't know when it will be, but be ready. But there's one. And then we like to say the Nephilim are the blank. The Nephilim are these half angel demon people things that, but you hear people make these vain speculations sometimes. The Nephilim are blank. And we like to put a race in there. We like to put a people group in there because that makes our conspiracy theories really, like holds a lot more water, more valid. It makes the hatred of those people validated in Scripture. Don't do that. That's satanic. That's demonic. Don't be consumed with or concerned with who the Nephilim are or if they even exist. You might be one. I'm <laughs> just fear God and keep his commandments. Nowhere in Scripture does he say, figure out who the Nephilim are, or where the portals for them. Don't, don't do that. That's going to just rip your credibility to shreds. And then we like to say things, another vain speculation. So-and-so is likely the Antichrist. Don't do that either. (laughs) You'll know when you see him. Or we should consider some of these apocryphal books to be on the same level of the the Bible, like the book of Jasher, Enoch, or Jubilees. We We should look at these books of the Bible and maybe examine them and put them on the same level of scripture. Eh, No, I'm good. I'm good. Don't do that. And it's funny because many of the people that say this phrase right here are so anti-Catholic, and they don't realize that the Catholics do that. (laughs) That the Catholic Bible, the Catholic canon, has all the apocrypha in it. And they consider that to be on par with the rest of scripture. But it's really funny when they do that. I'm like, do you realize you're you're acting really Catholic right now? (laughs) Oh, no, I'm not. But some other ones, in, in Titus 1.14, Paul says, ignore, ignore Jewish myths. Don't get caught up in Jewish myths. What is that? That could be like, um, like mysticism. Uh, it could be like, some, like elements of Kabbalah uh, or, you know, Gematria or different things like that. Paul's saying, don't get caught up in Jewish myths. 1 Timothy 4.7, he says, godless myths and old wives' tales. Don't allow yourself to get consumed with those things, right? Just go to wake up in the morning, read your Bible, pray, go to work all day, come home, be kind to your family, love your wife, eat supper, pray to your kids again, or whatever you do, go to bed and repeat. (laughs) Live a godly life. Just do the next right thing. is what he's saying. Just live simple, godly lives. So another lesson I took away. Well, let me, this picture reminded me. (laughs) When I was in high school... Um, that clock is wrong, so I keep looking at that clock. I'm looking, my watch is right there. When I was in high school, I had a crush on a girl.
1: Ooh.
0: Yeah. And uh, I, I wanted her, yeah, basically right. And, and I wanted her to be my girlfriend. But, um, you know, we were in the beginning stage of negotiating that a little bit, you know, and negotiating the, yeah, the prenuptial agreement of, of being girlfriend and boyfriend. And then guess what happened? You guys know what I'm, the new kid showed up to school. When the new kid comes to school, that's a game changer, isn't it? He could be like as ugly as sin, but he's the new boy and all the girls are just, they just lose their minds, don't they, over the new boy? He can, I mean, he just rolls up in the classroom. So this, in this story, the new kid comes to school and guess what my crush does? Yeah, she goes with him. She just forgets all about me, and he makes, he makes eyes at her, and he like blinks kind of fast, you know, and he puts his little cologne on, and, and she just gets wooed by him, and I'm just like, I'm old news to this girl, barely even remembers my name, and then I just kind of move on. I'm like, well, it is what it is, A new, the new kid, right, the new kid, he, you know, just, he just speaks one word, and all the girls in the classroom are like, shh, Right? And she got sucked into that. I'm like, whatever, you know? And then she became a, his boyfriend. And then like six months later, they had a really bad Rocky kind of thing going on. And really, it was a really bad breakup deal. And, and then guess where she came running to? <laughs> she came running back to the old kid. And guess what, guess what the old kid said? I'm good, honey. I'm good. You broke my heart. It's done. It's over. But we do that sometimes in our congregations. The new kid rolls in and you know, he might even be pre-tasseled and you know, he might have these things or know these things, or he might be able to hit those Hebrew pronunciations just spot on and smoothly. <laughs> and we're just like, the new kid, right? And everyone's like, wow, you know? And then, but then he's got a couple things up his sleeve, doesn't he? Like uh, maybe that Paul is not a real apostle. Or he says things like, uh, I don't know, that the Nephilim are these people or something. <laughs> or the Messiah will return to this date. And then we're just like, oh, the new kid said it, right? But we got to be really careful. It doesn't matter how much charisma someone has. Paul says that and he, the, the, the acclamation given to the believers in Ephesus was that they tested people who made a claim that they were apostles. We should test people. The Bereans tested people and they were called noble for doing so. We should do the same thing. We shouldn't get caught up in this new kid thing, right? That was a fun memory. Lesson number four, Stacy was wondering why I was crying this morning looking for that picture. No, she didn't. Lesson number four. Truthful biblical teaching is vital to the health of a congregation, and a healthy congregation furthers the dominion and the rule of God on earth because he is the source of all truth. So we wanna be a healthy congregation that goes on for a long time because why we're sanctifying God's name. So what does a healthy congregation look like? We're gonna get into that more in this book. We don't have time to talk about today per se, but you guys are doing good, you're a healthy congregation. Number five, there is a time and a place for a public calling out of those who are teaching false doctrines. What we call the Hebrew word is heresy. It's a divisive or confusing doctrine although it should not be a focus or desire of the elders to do so anybody that you know gets up and like a pastor or a teacher and they every single week they call out a new person this person that person they don't want to talk about this person they might be the heretic Paul is warning about <laughs> but an elder who gets up and says guys i'm sorry i have to do this but so and so is teaching a false doctrine we have rebuked them we have asked them to stop they won't we've asked them to take their doctrine and find a different place. I'm sorry we have to do this. You should hear that kind of fear and humility and voice of people that are having to rebuke and publicly call out false teachers.
1: Okay. Yes? You said
0: that was It's a Greek word. Oh, Greek gross. word, yep. it means divisive or confusing, yeah. <laughs> lesson number six in my final lesson today. It requires less faith on a person's behalf to entertain debate or to teach divisive and speculative doctrines than it does to actually just do the work of Yeshua, which is, in a nutshell, giving of yourself to draw others nearer to God. Okay? That requires more faith, Paul says, according to 1 Timothy 1. So with that, I want to ask you guys what questions or, or lessons did you learn? We've got a few minutes here. Marcus. Can you go back one slide? I can. Anybody have a question or comment they want to add? What did you learn from 1 Timothy 1? So, your homework is to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Jeremy's going to answer all your questions next week about 1 Timothy 2. So sure. I know he's already been preparing and teaching on his teachings. Anybody have any questions? No questions or comments? You guys are quiet. Hey, Brian? I forgot
1: because uh, I got
0: tangled up in your romance story. Yeah. <laughs> I did have a question. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you forgot your question. Yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll be here afterwards. Joy, did I see your hand up? Mm-hmm. Because, um Greek gnostic errors. Yeah. And I wanted to see if you could just touch on that a little bit. Yeah. 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 Gnosticism was in its infantile stages in the first century. And um, that would have been something that would have potentially weaseled its way into the, the, the church in Ephesus, for sure. Gnosticism is, it, it means um, gnosis, the Greek gnosis is like pursuing knowledge. Or secret knowledge especially Um, and sometimes a good Gnostic has to practice what's called asceticism in order to gain that secret knowledge and be have that secret knowledge revealed to them asceticism is the abstaining from things that bring you pleasure whether that's food or sex or whatever anything that brings you pleasure you abstain from it and a good Gnostic then through meditation or study of all kinds of texts, it, yeah, it's like this ascension of your mind and a revelation of, of the secrets of God to you. That's Gnosticism. It's an idolization of, of knowledge is what it is. And so yeah, that would absolutely have been something that they, and Greeks, Greeks loved pursuing knowledge. In the city of Ephesus, it said that there was one of the largest libraries in the world at the time. They had this big, massive library of ancient and modern texts that you go and you can read and gain knowledge. So I saw a question from Joel. Yeah, you uh, mentioned a people group that were considered righteous because of something. The Bereans? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The Bereans are mentioned in the book of Acts. Yeah, they're, they're believers. They're, Jewish, Jewish, uh, they're a Jewish synagogue in the city of Berea. Paul came to them in the book of Acts and he presents to them the gospel. And Berea is spelled B-E-R like this. Berea. They're people that lived in Berea. And it says that they studied day and night the things that Paul Paul was teaching to see whether they were true. They searched the scriptures, it said, to see whether the things Paul was saying were true or not. And he calls them noble for doing so. Noble Bereans. So does that answer your question, Joel? Yep. Cool. Suzanne, and we'll make this the last question for the day, and then I'll be here, I'll be right here if you guys have more questions. So, quick. Well, I got tangled up too, so now I don't know where the scripture is, but it's where you were talking about Didymus and somebody else that turned their back on Paul, and he was
1: calling them out. So, in the, in the part about Didymus, it mentions two other people, and it's a little confusing the way it's worded. Does it mean those other two? also were or they were just going to these different places because that was part of their missionary journey it's a
0: little yeah unclear. I don't know I don't know do you know where that scripture was I don't just I don't I'd have to look for it later yeah I'm sorry I'm sorry uh, Joel to answer your question again a little bit further Acts seventeen eleven is where it's mentioned you found it okay good alright guys let's close in prayer and then we'll do Kiddush Father I thank you so much for your, your Shabbat today I thank you where can we have the freedom to gather and to study your word and to worship you Father, we pray that you would just uh, guide our congregation, that you would give us all wisdom and discernment as we enter an era that is growing more and more confused by the day. We pray for and lift up the people of Israel today. We pray for revival and we pray for protection over her. Give her leaders wisdom, Father. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. 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 Hey, guys, I want to do something real quick. Um, we got Bradley here today. Um, Bradley is leaving on Monday for basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, for the Army. And I just want to get him up here if I don't, if you don't mind. Uh, and if we all could just agree in prayer over Bradley before he leaves for for basic training, how many of you know that the enemy wants to attack, especially servicemen and women? It's a whole other culture, right? A lot of godlessness that takes place there. So I want to pray for you right now, Bradley, if you don't mind. Father, well, we just lift up our brother Bradley, and he's been a blessing to so many here. And I pray that he will use this opportunity to be a light to those around him. And that he'll speak hope and clarity into his fellow soldiers' hearts. And Father, I pray that you would just protect and guide his steps and watch over him. That you would make him excel in all things that he sets his his hands to do. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.